My name is Michael Jerome Brown. I play blues and folk music, and you're listening to Talking Blues. So, um, congratulations on the new, new album. It's, it seems to be getting a lot of reviews. Yeah, it's getting nice ones. Yeah, so I want to talk about that, but I'm going to leave that till the end. I want to start by asking you about your love of music and love of blues. And, and my understanding is it happened to you when you were nine years old. Um, maybe you can tell me about that. Sure. Uh, I was uh, actually probably about eight but I, uh, when we went to see Sonny Terry and Brian McGee at the Backdoor Coffee House uh, in Montreal, and uh, but I had heard the records before that, so we had a couple of albums of theirs that were on heavy rotation, and I remember just loving those records. And then we went to see them, and I was like, "Wow!" I, I just remember thinking, I don't know. I, I, I wanted to play both harmonica and guitar. You know, I wanted to play them both. And I st- st- the, the harmonica was a bit more accessible to me. My dad was started fooling around with one. And uh, I said, oh, I'd like to do that. And then within about a, uh, a month, I was like way past him. But it still took me about two years. I started playing when I was nine. It took, it took about two years before I could bend a note. You know, but when that happened, I was like, "Whoa, man!" <laughs> like the way the the blues the blues thing where you bent notes, you know, the way Sonny Terry does. Did you know how it was done? Like, was it accidental that you bent the note? I, yeah, I, I, I because the, we had this book, a book by Tony Littleson Glover, who was from, uh, you know, uh, uh, Kerner Ray and Glover. Right. Probably one of the probably the first book on blues harp. And it kind of tried to explain how you bend a note, in, but on a page, how do you really explain it? And how do you even show someone? I've had right. stu- I've had students, you know, and I'm trying to st- say, well, you do kind of do this with your mouth, but yeah, how do you really explain it? It just I wouldn't know. I think I was actually walking down the street playing my harmonica. I used to do that when I was I was like 11, 10, 11, you know, and I was just at one point I'm just playing, and suddenly, whoa, there it is! It just happened. And could you replicate it immediately? Yeah, I think I, once I once I knew how to do it, my my mouth knew how to do it. You know, the the muscle memory kicked in. <laughs> so, what was it, what was the difference between hearing Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee on record, and then seeing them live? Like, I, I know you liked the music, but it wasn't until you saw them live that you thought, "I want to do that." Uh, yeah, I don't I don't know what it was about about that was so different, but but I mean, I guess. Yeah, live music is all, when you actually see the person playing it. You go, oh yeah, wow, that that's actually coming out of that's coming out of that little that box. You know, the, the, those sounds you can see them. It was just they were acoustic to right into it, just into a microphone. You know, uh, no amplifiers, no gimmicks, nothing. It was just pure acoustic music. And so you had the choice of either harmonica and guitar. You wound up taking up both. When when did the guitar start? Uh, a little bit later when I was 12. I guess part of it, partly it was like, you know, my hands had to grow. With. They didn't have these little kids' guitars that are so common nowadays. They, you, you can, yeah, everything was just full size. So, uh, you know, anyway, I, I also, we didn't have one around the house, but then at a certain point, my mom said she met somebody at, at where she worked 
that uh, taught guitar, and she came home one day. Would you like guitar lessons? And uh, said the, you know, offered them to my sister as well. It was and uh, it was this guy Kevin Head. Who was in, he's in Kingston. He's still playing. Uh, still out there, but he used to be in Montreal. Anyway, so he didn't he didn't know a lot of blues. He showed me what he knew. I want to play blues. I was like, that's what I want to do. And he he just showed me my three basic chords in uh, in a few different keys, and then. He said, well, this is the blues chord progression, but uh, he didn't know much else. He said, you're on your own now. <laughs> so I had, to, <laughs> I had to learn myself. And, and I, I presume you dug in deep. What was the path that, that got you into a point where I think you know your blues better than most? Yeah, I don't know. I, I guess I went... Because we we listened to a lot of folk music in the house too, like, like Pete Seeger, Joan Baez, and stuff like that. So we had a lot of acoustic music. So I kind of I guess I gravitated towards that at first. And I think Mississippi John Hurt was the one who really spoke to me in terms of the guitar. Like I I was like, oh, what's he doing there? And and I had some books that had the tablature, and I just kind of like I worked on that until I got it. It took me about a year of just like playing uh, the melody of Staggerly by Mississippi John Hurt, but without the bass, without with just the melody. And then at one point, the bass just fell right in. I was able to do it. What, what point did you decide that this is really what you wanted to do? Uh, I don't know. I think pretty early on in my teens, I was kind of like, yeah, I started busking and I was playing, I was playing, uh, at the Yellow Door Coffee House, from time to time, I had gigs that, like, I started actual gigs at age fourteen. So I, I think I thought at that point I was like, oh yeah, well this is, I guess this is what I'm supposed to do. My my and my parents didn't discourage me. They were academics. They were like uh, literature people, and so they're in the, the for them it was like artistic, and they thought it was good. You know, they weren't. There was no. Uh, which in a way was maybe not a great thing for me in terms of not having anything else to fall back on. Like I never really, they didn't push me to learn something that I could make money with. Well, it's interesting though. I mean, the fact that they didn't, I mean, the fact that you didn't have something to fall back on. I mean, I've interviewed a lot of people and some people swear that it's better that you didn't. If you're going to commit to music, then you just got to go all the way. In a way, yeah. It, yeah, I've seen, because I have seen some people who, you know, are very good, but then because they have other ways of making money, then they don't have as much time to devote to it. Yeah. But interesting how, as parents, they're the ones who introduced you to music yeah, and, and certainly encouraged you to play music. Yeah. Um, and, and coming from an academic background, it's interesting that they just kind of let you go and, and didn't question your love of music. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God. Yeah. <laughs> But did you ever question that? Because it couldn't have been easy all the time. Did you ever question that decision of being a musician? It was really only like much later, you know, when I had kids in my 40s that I was like, oh, I wish I had something I could make money with, make more, you know, because it, be, it became more difficult. When I was just supporting myself, it wasn't such a big deal. But then when there's a family involved, it becomes... Yeah, and um, I, I, I presume the pandemic didn't help. But when you started busking, 
Tell me about that, because you were like a one-man band on the street, right? Yeah, not immediately though. It it it, it all developed slowly. Like I, I developed a one-man band from. Uh, well, first I, I started just sort of playing my country blues kind of stuff on the street. It I didn't make much like when I was fifteen, sixteen, St. Catherine Street in Montreal. Didn't make much money, but it was just fine, you know, for me. It was. But then uh, at a certain point, when I was older. I uh, about 18 I started playing the fiddle and then that became a good a decent money maker in the metro here I would play uh, for passers-by and you know I could play the same tune over and over because they just keep moving and it's good for getting my chops you know and then at one point I can't remember I was with some people we went to Prince Arthur Street and I and they and somebody had a washboard, and and right away I noticed that. So I was playing fiddle. We were doing some like kind of Cajun-y kind of stuff, and somebody had a washboard, and I noticed that that washboard attracted people. So I th- I started thinking, okay, well then I'll play the f- fiddle with, and I'll play washboard with my feet. So that's it started there, but then I thought, well I don't have to play the fiddle anymore. The washboard seems to be the attraction. So then I started playing my blues stuff with the washboard and. I, Put the harmonica in a rack, which I hadn't really ever done very much. I had to—I was like relearning the harmonica that I'd kind of left uh, aside when I started playing guitar. And I know you play a lot of instruments. Do, do all these instruments come easy to you? Um, some of them have come easily. Uh, the string ones tend to be relatively easy. The uh, I've never been very good with like a, a piano keyboard. Like I, you know, we have one. And I even had one in my house when I was in my twenties, thirties, and it burned up in a fire. But then, so that, but I didn't play it very much. But it was there, and it was nice because when piano players would come over, they could play on it. You know, playing the fiddle is so different than playing the guitar, which which is different than playing the banjo. Yes. And you do all that. Mm-hmm. The banjo came right after the guitar. I started playing it like I was about thirteen, and there are a lot of lot of parallels. It's, the, the fiddle was a was a was a leap of faith I took. I was like, okay, I want to. I liked the sound of the instrument, and I wanted to learn how to do it. And I I, I really applied myself for about a year. That I pl- I made sure I played every day. And then I got to a point where I felt like I could actually play in public. I wonder at what point did you, I mean, did you ever stray apart from folk and roots music, blues? Um, well, the closest maybe would have been at one point I was in a band that played, we were doing kind of like a more modern kind of like soul R&B and uh, reggae and stuff like that. We were briefly like in a band that was doing more and we were trying to do kind of political stuff and but so that was maybe as far as I got from and we were doing some songs that we would do more modern songs, songs by the talking heads and songs by you know but kind of do them our way. Right. Yeah. Um, what did the busking experience do for you as a player? I think it really taught me about relating to an audience. Because if you don't, 
it um you you have to like get your audience to come to you when you're on the street uh and you have to then try and hold them for a while yeah so yeah it's 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 great uh um school it's a great school for learning how to for enter, being an entertainer but also it, it i think it strengthened my singing voice uh, i could have just and and i'll tell you this, this is a interesting thing cuz also like i i told you before that i i played the guitar with the washboard and then added the harmonica in Iraq then i added the kazoo in Iraq too i thought that's like my one of my heroes was Jesse Fuller who was right. the one the one man band you know wrote San Francisco Bay Blues well he played all those instruments plus he had a some kind of a string bass that he played with one of his feet but that that's another story but uh um the kazoo was something that at first I thought oh, that would be easy you know but then as soon as I started playing it I was like wow this is actually hard to to control your voice on this thing and to make it sound good and it and I think it strengthened my singing playing the kazoo I I had because you have to you you can't really like strain your voice into a kazoo it sounds terrible you have to produce a much purer tone that's not something strained but something that's like your real voice or something you know so it, i i really felt like my singing got stronger after i was playing the kazoo on the street i presume that that led well after you did the cover band is that when you joined steven berry's band oh no that was kind of like overlapping with the steven berry okay. band so tell me a little bit about the steven berry band Well, that that was a band that uh, I admired greatly. They'd been around since uh, mid 70s when I was a teenager. Used to sneak into bars to see them bef- when I was underage. And uh and so around I think around 79 is when they were kind of they had a bit of one of their first peaks where they they put out a, an LP and and uh and but then that band kind of like imploded or something and it, it kind of broke up. and then i and i saw and i and i i noticed that they that you know they i i heard oh they're having like auditions or something but i and i but i didn't really manage to you know i knew steven i'd met him at the at the yellow door coffee house he was hanging out there from time to time but uh, we didn't really totally connect yet until about four years later or something like that 1984 i just ran into him on the street and he said uh i got a gig you know and I, he had a drummer at the time but he didn't he didn't really have a guitar player so we it we, at first it was a trio and then uh so we had this gig we did a couple of gigs and then Andrew Cowan who was one of the original members from the 70s he kind of rejoined the band and then we, it was a quartet from then on and with just kind of it it yeah we were 14 years and uh it was also very much uh educational for me f- in many ways to play in a band with the same people and you you learn how they play and you learn how to make your parts mesh and and the band by the mid 90s we were really uh really really happening i guess it would be fair to say that the Stephen Berry band was a blues institution in Montreal yeah and it still is as a matter of fact they're they're still playing uh and and i'm going to be playing with them at the jazz festival here uh as a kind of featured guest with them uh in in July. I I know that you brought acoustic elements to that band. But what was it like for you to 
lean more towards the electric side of things? Uh, it, it was, uh, well, I learned a lot. You know, uh, Andrew Cowan says, uh, he always said that I didn't know what an electric guitar was when I joined the band. It's a bit of an exaggeration because I had done a couple of gigs on electric with uh, with some people, but it's true. Like, I, I didn't, I kind of approached it similar to the way I played acoustic, but I did, like, learn how to play sort of more modern styles that I, you know, that I enjoyed, like... Uh, sort of uh, Albert King or B.B. King style of playing, which, uh, you know, I, uh, I always admired. And I thought, okay, well, this is an opportunity to try and play in that style. And did you keep up with acoustic stuff during that time? Yeah, I was still actually, I was still busking. Oh. And Stephen and I would busk as a duo on the street. Like I would do my one-man band and he would play stand-up bass. We even went, uh, and this was while we were still in the, you know, the, the band was still we would because the band wasn't playing all the time so whenever there was you know a lull we would go out on the street we wound up going to Halifax uh, for a Buskers festival and uh, we went to Fredericton as well and uh, yeah it was we had a lot of fun when I added Stephen uh, as a to the street show it didn't um, the money didn't go down like I, at first I was like okay well let's try this but as soon as I added the string bass, uh, we, we made twice the money that I made as a solo. So it was worth it. Interesting. Crowds were bigger too, I think, yeah. If I was to ask you, if you take yourself back there, did you have goals? Musical goals? To tell you the truth, I wasn't thinking about it a lot until I got into my 40s, maybe. Like, till I, got, till I went solo, you know, like in my late 30s. It really, it, I just was this kind of like, I didn't have this, I like, and then, and then when I made my first album, that was kind of like a, a as a solo, I was, I was still in the band when I, when I made that first one, and then, then I decided it's time to go, and kind of time to do my own thing. How difficult was that decision? Um, it wasn't that difficult, um. Uh, Partly because it, it got spurred on by uh, our drummer uh, John McCulgan leaving the band at around that time, and I th and when he left, I kind of thought, hmm, okay. Uh, we were like then rehearsing with a new drummer who was an old drummer, Gordy Adamson, who's the current drummer, who was actually the original drummer in the band, and uh, it kind of. Uh, I thought, okay, not, this is probably the moment I, I was thinking about it, that maybe it's time to go solo. And I thought, well, now is the time. Okay, so what did that entail? I mean, not only quitting the band, but now you're saying, okay, I got to sell myself as a solo artist. And, and I presume more than just busking is trying to get a career going as a solo artist. What's, what, what happened then? Well, um... Well, first of all, the that first album, um, it got a Juno nomination, but not immediately. It was one of those things where the year we released it, we submitted. I was with Bros Records at the time, which is a lo local. Uh, that, um, that's Rene Moisan's label. It's, it's still still going, um, and submitted it that year. But because we had released it at a certain during a certain period, I think in the fall. If uh, if you um, if you don't get a nomination, 
you can resubmit the next year. And we did, and we got the nomination. And that was, uh, I think that that sort of opened my eyes to, oh, yeah, uh, maybe I should get out and tour outside of Quebec and wound up going out west for the first time and playing a bit more in, in Toronto. Um, how confident were you as a player at that point? I was pretty confident that I was a good player, yeah. I wasn't, like, uh, shy about it. No, but I meant, like, as a solo artist, because, you know, you had been doing this for a while, but now this is your first solo album. How confident were you as a solo artist that, that had just left the band that you'd been playing with for years and years? Well, I, I, I always was a solo artist right from the get-go when I was... Uh, a teenager and for like a good 10 years before I joined the band right, and I right. continued doing the busking thing and doing some coffee house gigs here and there on my own so I I was I was pretty confident I, I felt pretty and I still feel sometimes that when I'm on stage alone is when I'm free it's easier than when I'm up there with a band and so what did that Juno nomination mean uh well, it was, I saw it as recognition that, you know, what I'm doing is good and that uh, I should pursue this, I guess. I mean, it might not have been the only thing that made me want to do that, but... From the very beginning, if I'm not mistaken, you've combined doing cover songs and originals. Yes. And sometimes more covers than originals, sometimes the other way around. How do you... What was the thinking behind that? Well, I mean, I, I never really considered myself that much of a songwriter, but then when I got together with my wife uh, in, an, in the mid-90s, uh, and she's a writer, and so we started collaborating on songwriting then. And there's like two songs on my first album, and then there's about uh, four on the second album, and maybe four or five on the third album. So it kind of like it grew, you know. Uh, eventually we did, there's one album uh, called This Beautiful Mess that's a majority of original songs. We, ha we haven't gotten back to that since then, but... Uh, and did you find that transition to becoming a writer a difficult thing? Well... I, I would find it really difficult if I was writing the words, yes, but I don't find it difficult to write the music uh, if I have words that I like. So she writes the words, gives it to you, and then you... Is that the process? Worked, we've done it in different ways. We have some songs, uh, some, a couple of early songs, she just uh, said, oh, could we play something, and, and I would write, as she would write while I was playing. So that kind of... Uh, was how we started, but then later she started just giving me lyrics. Her name is B. Marcus, by the way. I don't know if I mentioned her name. I uh, know you hadn't, but thank you for doing that. Um, and, but was that tricky to work with your wife? Uh, it's, uh, yeah, I guess it can be at times. It's, but but it, it works pretty well because we have we have very defined roles, you know, like she doesn't really, sometimes she'll say, oh, here's some lyrics. I think this should be up-tempo, you know. She'll say something, things like that, but she doesn't really come up with the music. She writes songs on her own as well, of her, with her own music. 
Oh, okay. Because you're so versatile and you play so many different types of music, is it easy to get the lyrics and go, okay, this is going to be a folk song or this is going to be, you know, southern blues or how does that happen? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, often I think she has an idea to where of where what type of song it's going to be. Uh, so, and it's, it's often pretty clear from the lyrics what, where it's going, like if it's a blues, if it's going to have the, it sometimes has the AAB structure, although we try and get, you know, get away from that because it, it's just, sometimes it just sounds very formulaic if every song is just the AAB structure. How many albums have you done at this point? I think it's like nine. Depends on if you count the live one and the the re, which is a reissue. Oh, you got to count the live one. Yeah. <laughs> is it difficult to come up with new concepts, or are those things just just naturally? Oh, next album is going to be this. It it tends to come to me pretty uh, naturally. I don't I don't uh, have to search. You know, often it's like, oh, I'm into a certain type of thing. Like the 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 album with all the original songs, this beautiful mess. That was like, well, that was like a blend of country and soul that I kind of like wanted. I'd been wanting to do something like that for and I, for a while, and I it just sort of, I thought, okay, let's try it, and we wrote songs for it. Right, my favorite is the road is dark, mm-hmm. which I believe I told you. But I just think it's such a stunning album. Great. And I like it because like, it, it seems very seamless between the covers and your songs. Uh, tell me a little bit about that album. Whoa, that's, I, I hadn't even thought that much about that album in a while. <laughs> and I will tell you, I remember being at the Blues Music Awards and talking to um, a disc jockey from Dublin. And he was telling me how much he loved that album. Well, I was just in Dublin, yeah. <laughs> I wonder if he was there at the show. He probably was. I, it wouldn't surprise me. Anyway, uh, yeah, uh, th- uh, that record, that was 2011 or so. That was after this beautiful mess, and I think we were just trying to... Uh, I-, I thought of it as... A, as I thought this is, this is a blues album, you know, but it was kind of... at. I'm not. I'm not sure everybody else thought of it as a blues album. It didn't get a nomination uh, in the blues category. I think maybe it was a little bit too eclectic or something in in its approach to. Uh, but to me, I was like, okay, I'm going to do all these these different songs, and they're all going to be blues in some way. And to in my in my head, you know. How do you measure? And success is maybe not the right word for it. But success, how do you measure each album that you do? Like, how do you, is it basically numbers or is it more than that? You mean numbers like sales and stuff like that? or? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if that's the only only way you judge what what you think of the album. Um, um, but I, I wonder, when you've released 10 albums, how do you look back on and, and determine what how successful the album was in your mind, not financially, but just artistically? That's a good question because, uh, for as, as an example, the album "The Road" uh, not "The Road's Dark," the, the this beautiful mess, which is the one that I probably spent the most money on because I had like a full band and uh, traveled to Toronto to record it and uh, did it at Canterbury Studios and uh, 
hired some amazing musicians and uh, and and I, I thought at that time I thought this album is gonna you know it's really gonna do it for me you know it's gonna put me up to another level and uh, but it was the timing was not great and also a lot of people were like what were like kind of not sure about the they were like what is this album you know why what, this is what you're doing now like I, I remember one artistic director saying this is what you're doing now <laughs> and although in the end he, he hired the band you know he did hire the band and you know he and it, but it was really uh yeah it was uh, uh but I, but I still love that album I think it's a I, I hear it now and I go yeah this this is a good record and the songs are good and uh so that's in the in the long run in the, so, but that was the album that took a long time for it to get in the black and uh, for it to pay for itself, but uh, I think it's it's a success. The album, even though it didn't sell very much. Okay, so the the last few years have been difficult for most musicians. I presume that the latest album that you did comes from that time. Tell me about the latest album and the experience of the the pandemic for you. Well. Yeah, I mean, um, I was able to weather the storm with the help of the Canadian government and, uh, <laughs> you know, a, a little bit of savings that and, and my wife working. But uh, there was also that whole thing of not being able to see people and, and get together with people to play. And uh, Creatively, what did it do for you? Um. Like were you more creative or less creative? Well, we I, we certainly didn't write songs. Uh, somehow we didn't like that. Did, that didn't happen. So when when it was when it got to the point where I thought, okay, I need to make a new record. Well, my my impulse was to do older songs and to do to to collaborate with people because we'd been shut in so long and couldn't get together with people. So. Uh, this was an opportunity to, uh, to to do it, you know, get together with people in the studio and record some, and 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 not like overthink it. Just pick some songs that people might already know, and have fun. And tell me about the people, because I mean, you've obviously worked a lot with Harrison Kennedy. Yeah. You worked with Eric Bibb. How did you decide on who to work with and it happened in a pretty organic way, like because it's, uh, it's it started though with just. Um, Mary Flower, who is this very fine fingerstyle guitarist who lives in Portland, Oregon. Um, we've been friends for years. We've, you know, run into each other here and there. And, and she hired me for her blues camp in Oregon one time, blues guitar camp. Uh, so we, we've been talking about, oh, we should get to, we should record something. We should make an album together or something. And so I just saw that she was um, going to be in... New Upper New York State, um, in in July of last year, doing a doing a guitar camp. I saw that on Facebook. She posted that, so I, you know, I sent her a message. Says, Mary, can you, would you be able to come maybe a day early, and we'll get it. I'll find a studio, and we'll we'll just go in and we we'll record some tunes. And so they started with that, with me just. And so I recorded like a, I, I booked a day of a studio. So we, we recorded quite a bit. We did six tunes in that day, uh, which is the most I did with 
I think there's five of them with Mary. So that mo most of the other collaborations are usually one or two songs, but with, with her, we just did a lot as much as we could do. Because I didn't, so you, sometimes you'd need to just throw, you know, throw stuff against the wall and see what sticks. But then, but all of them were good, you know, came out good enough to use. And uh, so it started there, and then I thought, okay, and also, be, but even before we did that session, uh, I was coming down to Toronto for the Blues Summit, which was in June that year. It was kind of at a weird time, you know, the Blues, the blues Awards, the Maple Blues Awards. And so um, I thought, oh, i got to get Harrison to do a song with me. And so we did that. I went down to Hamilton and recorded with him and... So yeah, it just that it, a lot of it was just like, oh, where am I? Who's here? You know, like I I I I planned to go to Nashville to for the Americana conference, which had been I was going to go in twenty twenty, and it got postponed, uh, you know, it got uh, canceled, and then I could have gone in twenty twenty one, but they they gave me the option of postponing it another year. So I I, w I went in the fall and. and before going, I was like, wait a minute, who lives in Nashville? So then. I thought Colin Linden, you know, who I hadn't seen, who I'd never, who'd never really recorded anything together. So, and he's got a studio, so that was easy, you know. And uh, other other things happened too, by chance, like Jean-Jacques Milteau, who um, who's uh, I had done the album with Eric Bibb with Migration Blues a few years back. So he's he lives in France, right? But he was coming through. He sends me an email. Oh, I'm come. I'm going to be in town for a few days. Let's have a coffee. And I was like, okay, great. And then, uh, then, but then I thought, wait a minute, I should get him in the studio. And so I did, you know. And then that 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 just happened by chance. And then, I, then of course, I thought, well, let's get Eric Bibb on that track too. And that we couldn't do that live because he's in Sweden. So we did it. We did that one remote, his track remotely. But but me and Jean Jacques were done live. Tell me about that relationship with Eric Bibb because it's it's. It's been a while that you've worked with one another. You just finished a tour with them. How did that relationship start, and what is it about that relationship that's special? Yeah, well, I realized recently that it's been about 20 years now that we've been wow. collaborating. And uh, he, we met in 2001 at the Calgary Folk Festival. Um, I was, that was one of my first cross-Canada tours, my second album, I don't think my second album was not even totally out, wasn't really out yet. It was only my first one. And um, we were put on the same stage, you know, one of those workshop stages, you know. And uh, I guess he, he liked what he heard, but I, I thought nothing of it. You know, we, uh, you know, we, we, uh, he's, a, he's a super friendly guy. And I thought, okay, uh, about, I don't know, it's, a year and a half later, I get a phone call, a message on my machine. Hey, Michael, I'm going to be in Edmonton next summer. Do you, do you think you might be there to, uh, you might be anywhere near there to do some recording? He was making an album called Friends, and he, was, and he had uh, all these people that were at the Edmonton Folk Festival. Um, he was, he had Taj Mahal, all these people were there for the festival, and he was taking advantage of them being there to get him in the studio. And as luck would have it, I had a festival booked in Manitoba the week before, and another one in BC the week after. So it was, it was perfect. I just, you know, I said, okay, sure, I'll come. You know, I came and so it started there. 2000, that was in 2003, so that's 20 years ago. 
And then he asked me to do some touring with him, like in 2004. So off and on, we t we've toured over the over the years. It's not not a steady, all the time, you know. But yeah. But do you know, like, I mean, do you know as soon as you get together with him that there's something that clicks together? Yeah, I think, and I think it really developed. Um, I think it took me a while to really figure out what I should be playing with him because he plays a very a very um, full accompaniment with his guitar. It's 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 very intricate. He's a, he's an amazing guitar player. Like he does incredible mm. stuff. And from over the over the years, I I I simplified my playing with him. Like I playing just trying to find the those little spots where I can put something in there that's not going to take away from what he's doing, and it's not going to jump on top of the vocal either so yeah so what do you expect out of this new album i mean do you have expectations how does that work to tell you the truth that i'm i, I don't really have huge expectations i didn't I, I i mean i hope that it will get me work that's usually what i but it, the 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 uh response has been better than i thought it would be I, I, I'm, people are really liking it, and uh, it seems that they like it because it's maybe different from what a lot of blues albums are today. Right. People are reacting to that. So I'm, and I'm, and I'm, I'm surprised a little bit by the, the reviews, like the, the how uniformly good they are I'm, you know it's just uh how important is that to you i mean i obviously you don't want to hear see a lot of shit reviews but how important is a review to you and what does it mean to you uh well i mean i, th I, th I think it is it, uh, you know you, you try not to let it get to you i mean more, but i think I've, I've, I've been lucky that i've had a lot a, a lot of good reviews but occasionally, some people who, did, who just didn't know, didn't understand what I was doing, I guess. And it seems with this one, people do understand it. So that's, I, I like that. I like it to, to feel like, oh, they they get it, you know? Because it's not a, a typical album of blues. It's, it's, it's a throwback in a lot of ways. Uh, and throwback is what you do, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. I mean, you've dedicated your most of your career in digging up really old music and and presenting it, representing it, making it your own. Um, does that philosophy change over the years? Does, does the way you approach a recording and what you hope to accomplish change a great deal over the years? Not a lot, no. Uh, you know, uh, I still like to record v as live off the floor as possible. Uh, I've had people say to me, "Oh yeah, but, you know, it'd be cool to if maybe you should try recording something more sort of layered and you know where you record the, all the tracks separately and you produce it. And you get a producer. I've produced all, every single album I made too. I've never used an outside producer. Uh, I don't know, I, I, but I think is there a reason for that? I I think well, I think." Uh, and it's generally been a you know monetary reason is one of them, you know because if you bring in a producer you have to pay them, and it's right. usually not cheap. But I also I, I think I really I I I, I know what I what I want it to sound like, 
And so if I were to use a producer, it would have to be somebody that I really thought, oh, okay, I, I want you know, somebody, like if T-Bone Burnett said to me, hey, I want to produce your album, I probably would go for it. But, right. uh, but, uh, but uh, I, I, I'm not really, a, a lot of artists feel they need that outside uh, ears, the outside ears in the hole, uh, or the outside, somebody with a direction. But I usually have, I think I usually have that. I know what I want to do. And how early does that come in in the recording process? Like, Do you know from the very get-go that you have this idea of a new album and you have an idea of the sound immediately, or this is something that evolves over time? I think it does evolve a bit, but... Um... Like this new one was like, I was just like, let's just try some stuff. Let's just, you know, but I, but I did, it did have a unifying thing in it in that I was doing older songs at songs too, that I heard when I, in the sixties, when I was a kid, you know, so I guess, but I didn't know like musically exactly who was going to be in it at first. It all kind of, it did develop but I, but I think I've, I have a bigger, a greater sense of that now, uh, of of the direction of an album than when I started. Like my first two albums are, are a little bit kind of like just me throwing stuff. Like it's very eclectic. And the first one is there's clawhammer, banjo, and there's Cajun fiddle. And I just wanted to show all the things I could do at the time. You know, there's a band stuff and there's solo and. But I, I I'm less. Um, Soon after that, I started to really focus on a particular genre, maybe. Um, with the knowledge of music that you have, because I think you're a student of old music, um, are there a lot of things that you'd still love to record? Yeah. That, that, that you haven't been able to record so far? Like, is How does that work in terms of you, you have this huge library of old songs, whether it be blues, Cajun folk or whatever but are there a lot of things that you think oh I still have to get to that I, I haven't done um, like a, 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 a swing jazz album I'd, lo I'd love to do that that's you know I played with Susie Arioli and Jordan Officer for a long time as a rhythm guitarist mainly and uh, that's genre and, and you know B and I have written a couple of songs in that style too it could be cool to do that one day. I haven't gotten around to that. Do you have plans for, like, are you forward thinking enough that you know what your next project or next two projects are? Oh, no, or? I'm not there yet. I'm still just, uh, yeah, I don't, that doesn't, I know some people, Eric Bibb is like that. He's right away, as soon as he's finished one album, he's already, like, thinking about the next one. But I'm just, like, just living in this album right now. And tell me about the summer. How's the summer looking? Uh, there's not a lot. Um, I've got the Montreal Jazz Festival with the Stephen Barry Band, and I've got a few, a couple of dates in France, but that's kind of it. I, I wasn't really able. I'm, I'm doing my own booking, and I'm, I'm not very good at it. I've never been good at it, and I, and, and I, and I also think that was since the whole COVID thing, it's it. Uh, uh, the promoters, the the artistic directors, they're, they're kind of. They're they're not uh, like if I had a new album like before COVID, 
uh, oh, then the album is new. Then they're like, oh, yeah, okay, let's book you this year. But no, now it's kind of like the album has to be already out or something, and then they'll hear it. And then maybe, I'm hoping next year there'll be more more like dates in Canada. But it's been, uh, it's been, it's been hard getting things going again. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. But I mean, when you say I'm not really good at it, that uh, I mean, that makes me wonder that is this the right approach? Like, is it that you? That's probably not the fair question. But when you say I'm not really good at it, what does that mean? Is it just you have no other choice but to book yourself? Yeah, I've, I've, I, I would I would love to have somebody else do it, but I've, it hasn't happened I've, I've knocked on some doors you knock on doors for a while and then the, you, the, the, there aren't enough agents out there right it just there's, it, there's it's it's uh, it's a it's kind of a sad state of affairs yeah and then you knock on some doors and you, you get the rejection and then you then you stop knocking and then you just and how do you deal with that well I just and, and I'm, I know that I'm not the only one that there's lots of other people I know who uh, are kind of stuck doing it themselves. Some people do it themselves by choice, but a lot of people would lo- would like somebody to do it, and then you then you can concentrate more on your art, you know. Yeah, I mean you're such a well-respected musician, mm-hmm. and you've obviously proven yourself with the time that you've put into this and and the number of awards you've been nominated for and won. Um, must be frustrating it is that aspect of it like I, I really wish I could let find somebody who could who does it but that but of course though people I know I also know musicians who have agents and they complain about their agents you yeah, yeah, know? yeah you know it, it has to be the right person because sometimes you get with someone who's like who neglects you or got other artists that they're more interested or, or that are easier to book you know, I mean, the, the rule is, right, that agents have told me this, that when, they're really only going to uh, want to book you when you're, you've already laid the groundwork and you already have booked yourself and you're making a certain level, uh, you know, a level of money that they, then they can, they can come in and do it for you. But if right. you, they, they, their job is not to promote you that's not their job is to book you and if and if you're not if you haven't promoted yourself to the right to a certain level then they they it's hard for them to book you my final question tell me about the passion you have for music um that young kid who saw sanitarium brownie mcgee to the person you are today does that is that passion for music still the same yes i would say it is um i don't uh get out and see as much live music as I would like to. Uh, but it is it is more possible now because my kids are kind of grown, so it's a bit easier to get out of the house when necessary. But, uh, yeah, I mean, um, and I'm still discovering, you know, styles of music. Like, I listen to folk music from all over the world, and I like to... I, I discover stuff all the time, new things. Not that I'm necessarily going to play, but just that I like to listen to. Well, Michael, thank you so much for doing this. It's been... We've, we met each other, God, in the early 2000s, and um, 
I've enjoyed your music. The latest album sounds great. So best of luck with that. And I'm hoping that you'll be out there touring a lot with the new album. I will be down in Ontario in September. Whereabouts do you know? Uh, I'm supposed to do a Hughes Room live thing. I think it's going to be at the Transac. I'm going to be uh, at the Moonshine Cafe in Oakville. I've got something in Trenton. Just a short tour, like mid-September. Oh, good. Mm. Well, maybe we'll see you. Yeah. Thank you so much. All right, thanks. Thanks.